All right, well, welcome everybody. I'm still waiting for one person, but we'll go ahead and get started. Thank you for all for being on time. I appreciate that. The Bibles are not a mistake. We're going to actually look at some of that stuff today. We'll go through um, some, just some of the, uh, I think it's important for us to kind of look at the prophecies that tell us who Jesus is. And so really encourage you to start delving maybe a little bit more deeply into the word. Um, and don't be, don't be afraid of the Bible. You know, I, I feel like... Um, I feel like sometimes we think we're overwhelmed by the idea of reading sacred scripture. And so I really would just encourage you to, um, to pick the Bible up and, and just start reading one of the books. And just, but just take it a little at a time and a little each day. And um, it's really God's word to us. And so he wants to speak to us. It's his love letter to us in a very deep and meaningful way. And so I'd really just encourage you to start um, start doing that. So I'm sure you all have a Catholic Bible at home, um, but if you don't, I encourage you to get one. Um, this There's a couple of different um, versions that are out there. Um, Janine, you have my favorite version in front of you, the, the this one. That's the Revised Standard Version. It's actually the most beautiful translation, I think. Um, the bishops use the New American Bible. Um, we use this for our lectionaries. This is what you hear read at Mass. Both are fine. Um, there's, there's many translations of the Bible, um, but it's important for you to get a Catholic translation because the Bibles are different. So we've got seven more books in the Bible than the Protestant faith does, and so it's important for us not to miss out on those. Um, those seven were removed um, in the, around the Protestant Reformation um, in about 1600, and they're all from the Old Testament. And so... Um, so it's kind of an interesting um, story about why those books were removed. Um, I think Martin Luther was mistaken that those books were actually not utilized by Jesus. Um, he, he looked to the Hebrew translation of the Bible, um, which didn't include the seven books. And so, um, and so you know, really, he, he, was, he was looking at the, some of the doctrines that came from those books, um, and said, you know what, I don't really think that we believe in that. I don't think that that is as biblical as it should be. And so, um, so those books were um, removed. He also suggested that we remove um, one of the, um, the books of the New Testament, which was James, um, Book of James. And um, the reformers at that time said, no, that's going a little too far. Um, and so that was not removed. Um, so our, our New Testaments we share completely, um, Protestant denominations and all Christian denominations. Um, that baptize the way that we baptize. We share those uh, 27 books, but the Old Testament is different. We have seven more. We have 46 in the, in the Old Testament that we, um, that we see as um, canonical. And so that's important for you to, to recognize. Um, well, before we begin, let's start in prayer, and then we'll, um, we'll begin this conversation about Jesus. This is really the heart of the matter. You know, who is Jesus? Who do we believe he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because this should transform how you live your life, what you believe about Jesus. Um, if you believe what we believe about Jesus, it should transform your life. And so I want you to ponder that deeply today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just praise you and thank you for your goodness and your grace, for your presence in our life, in our church, and in one another. Um, Lord, we ask that you bless us, that you send your spirit to us um, in a mighty way today so that you can open up our hearts and our minds to receive all that you intend about your life, your love, and your plan for us. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. amen. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, 
So as I mentioned, I think um, this really is the heart of the matter. This, um, my clicker's not going to work. It's just the way it is. Um, you know, who, who is Jesus? You know, who is Jesus? Well, we started out our conversation in this class about the story of salvation history, right? Kind of the whole story about our faith from the very beginning, the beginning of creation, until Jesus, who is the new and everlasting covenant. So we went through all those Old Testament covenants. We talked about Jesus as the new and everlasting covenant. He's the fulfillment of all that has gone before. Um, and so, so what I want to tell you is that Jesus is not part of the story. He is the story, right? He is God himself. He is the second person of the Blessed Trinity that 2,000 years ago took on human flesh became man, um, and, and, and we're going to talk about the reasons why he came, you know, and how, why did he come in the way that he did, and, you know, how does that make sense for us, um, and why was it so violent and so difficult? Um, all those things, I think, are really important. But Jesus is the Word, and this is so important. We believe that sacred scripture is God's love letter to us, as I've said. We believe it is inspired. It is infallible. It is central to our faith, but not everything that Jesus said and did is in sacred scripture, right? John's gospel actually ends the gospel with the idea that if we had, if we had written down everything Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. So we are not a religion of the book. We're a religion of the word. And Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, right? In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. That word is Jesus Christ. All things are created in and through Jesus Christ. And so the word of God has created everything that exists. He is the word. And so we can't exhaust the person of Jesus Christ, even by this amazing book that is sacred scripture. Jesus never wrote a word, but he said and did all the things that we continue to say and do today um, as his disciples. And so that's important for us. So I'm not denigrating sacred scripture, I'm, I'm saying that that's not all there is. That's why we have sacred tradition, right? Sacred tradition encompasses sacred scripture. And that should be an eye-opener for you. I heard this at 42, and I said, what? <laughs> sacred scripture is part of sacred tr tradition. Jesus never wrote anything. There was not a New Testament. The first, you know when the first new part of the New Testament was written? 30 years after the ascension back to the Father the letter to the Thessalonians. It wasn't even a gospel. And so, um, so, so sacred scripture is part of the tradition. There was a church at Pentecost, right? And so scripture is part of tradition, um, a very important part of tradition. Um, and so tradition encompasses everything that Jesus said and did. The passing on of everything that he did. That's why do this in memory of me was the first way of worship for the early centuries, right? And so, um, so Jesus is the word, and that's so important for us to understand it. John's gospel says it, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word is God. Jesus is the word who has come down, you know, and, and not left an ounce of his divinity behind, but has become man so that we can, in effect, participate in his life. Beautiful, beautiful idea of that. Um, so important for us to kind of, you know, put this in a perspective which is critically important, and that is that, you know, Jesus is the story. He is, the, he is God. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And this took time for us to figure out, right? 
This took time for us to figure out. Christianity was illegal until the year 312. People died for the faith in the first 300 years of the faith. Every pope was martyred, right? Because they claimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, all the apostles were martyred except for St. John. So people died for the faith, right? And so for the first 300 years of our faith, um, you know, there wasn't anything in the sense of like formal councils or, you know, meetings of bishops because people died for that. So 312 was when Christianity became legal. And then 325, we have our first council. So, you know, just within the first 10 years after Christianity becomes legalized, we have our first council. Why? Because there's a lot of heresies about who Jesus is. People are saying Jesus isn't really divine. He's just a really important human. He's a really important prophet. Um, he doesn't really die for our sins. Um, he, somebody, somebody substitutes for Jesus at the moment of his death. There's all these heresies that are going around in the, in the year 300. And so the church meets together to squash those, those heresies and to teach the truth about who Jesus is, that he is, he is fully man, but he's also fully God. Wow, how do we understand that? How does the church understand that and come to, um, to know that that is true? Um, so that's, that's really kind of amazing. I, I want to kind of go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and kind of talk about, because we're, we're talking about Jesus, why did he come? So it's important to know who we are, who we were called to be in, in God's plan, and then what happened, okay? So Genesis 1 and 2 tells us who we are. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us who we are. Genesis 1 tells us our meaning. Why does it tell us our meaning? Well, you remember Genesis 1. It goes through day 1 through day 7. It tells us the story of creation in seven days. Um, and it, it really kind of makes clear to us that we, as human persons, are the crown of God's creation. And that he creates all things from this incohate mass. He creates from nothing, right? And he creates the sun and the moon and the stars and the vegetation and the water and the fish. And then the animals. And then he kind of halts and says, that's good. But I'm going to create something that's very good. And that very good is going to be in my image and likeness. So he takes a deep breath and says, let us make man in our image. First glimpse of the Trinity, right? Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so here we see we are different from the rest of creation. We have a memory, an intellect, a will, the capacity to choose the good. And God said, this is how you can live with me forever. Don't eat of that fruit of the tree. Right? And if you do, you can't live with me anymore. And so use your freedom well. Use your freedom for the good, and only God is good. Right? We hear that in the story of the rich young man. Only God is good. Um, God is the one that gives us good and evil, and we choose it. We don't decide what's good and evil. We choose what God has already said is good. And man is very good. Why? Because we're making the image and likeness of God, not because we're so great. Everything we have, we have received. God has given us everything that we are. And so all of our goodness is a grace. We have to remember that, right? It's all a gift. Everything we have, we have received. Um, and so, so, so beautiful to kind of ponder that. So Genesis 1 tells us we are called to be like God. Not to be God, but to be like God. Because we're made in his image and likeness. We're different from the rest of creation. We're unique. We're precious. That's why we believe that life is good and we don't, we don't ever choose anything that would be um, 
taking away from life, like abortion or euthanasia. Even contraception is problematic as it relates to a life. And we can talk more about that as, as we go forward. Um, and so, so Genesis 1 tells us who we are and what our meaning is. Genesis 2 tells us our purpose. How does that happen? So what, what's our purpose? Do you ever wonder what your purpose is? Well, I'm about to say what your purpose is. So Genesis 2 tells us our purpose. Why? Because it's a creation story, and it sounds like it's kind of a whole new creation story, but it's not. And it's meant to be read together because God is the primary author of sacred scripture, and he wrote them both, along with some human authors. But God places man in paradise in Genesis 2, and he breathes life into the man. This is where we hear about how man is, is radically integrated as a body-soul unity. He doesn't breathe life into a body. He breathes life into a man. So our body-soul reality is, is so clear here, right? And then he, he basically says, um, something's not right about creation. Something's not right about paradise. And that something is that you and I, ladies, haven't arrived yet, right? That's the problem. You know why? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God who is love. God is a communion of persons, a communion of love, and we're made to love. That's our purpose. Our purpose is to love. And there was nobody for the man to love, nobody for the man to give himself to. So God puts Adam to sleep. Why? Because he wants to make it clear that Adam has nothing to do with the creation of Eve. There's no hint of domination here that the man is to lord it over the woman. That's not the point. The point is that the woman is given to the man to love and to care for and for her to do the same. They are helpers towards the other towards their destiny, who is God. See, man and, man and woman were made for God. So I, I just taught my marriage class yesterday. I have somebody who was here yesterday, so he's like hearing the same story today. I'm so sorry. And so, um, but you know, I, I say, you know, sometimes we think that when we find the one we're gonna marry, that we've found our destiny somehow, that like, I've got everything I need now. No, 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 don't mistake, you know, the, the destiny for the journey. Because your partner is your helper towards your destiny, who is God, not your destiny. God is your destiny. All of us have the exact same destiny, and that destiny is God, it's holiness. Um, and, so, and so we're supposed to help each other to reach that destiny, who is God. That's the point. And so, so that's why there's, you know, God wants to make clear that Eve is not just another object. She's a subject of God's love, just as Adam was. And so he puts Adam to sleep and he takes the rib of Adam and builds up the woman. You know why? Because they're made of the same stuff. They're equal in dignity. They are both very good, made in the image and likeness of God. And then God the Father presents the bride to the bridegroom. And he's never seen anything like this. You know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Finally, someone with whom I can share my world. And so... What happens to Adam is what happens to all of us when we encounter love. We're transformed by it. He's, he's recreated in the creation of Eve. And that's what happens when you meet the one that you're going to marry and love, right? Your life circumstances really haven't changed, but everything is different. Because now I have someone with whom I can share my world and carry the burdens, experience the joys, all those great things. Um, and so... Genesis 2 tells us our purpose. God the Father then says, a man shall leave his mother and father, cling to his wife, not his girlfriend, not his living, his wife to whom he commits himself forever, right? To be faithful, to give everything that I am, to be open to new life, 
and children. Um, a man shall leave his mother and father, cling to his wife. The two shall become one. And then he gives the couple their first command, which is to be fruitful and multiply. Not to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, but to be fruitful and multiply. Um, to make more like me, you know, so that you can love well. Um, and then they were naked and unashamed. So, you know, it's not that they were just comfortable without their clothes on in the garden. Mm -hmm. What it was is that they could see each other as a gift that they were. Like, you know, that we're, all of us really are gifts for one another. We're meant to be a gift. The deepest desire of your heart is to give yourself away. And if you're not doing that, you're, there's something lacking. And that's why the finite things that we attempt to fill our life with don't ever really satisfy. They do for a while. You know, I remember when I was, I was younger and I, I always knew I wanted to be a nurse, but I didn't think I was smart enough to be a nurse. So I, um, in second grade, I failed math and that like colored my whole world. Don't ever think that those things don't color a person's world. I thought I was dumb. I thought I was the dumb one in the house, right? Now I have three master's degrees and I, I lord it over all my brothers now. But, um, but really, you know, I just thought I would, but I, I you know, I, I just, I thought, well, I can't do math, I can't do science, so I never prepared to be a nurse. And then finally, I graduated from college, and I was you know, a legal secretary, which is a wonderful career for somebody who wants to be a legal secretary, and I just wasn't made to be a legal secretary. And so one of my friends just said to me, just go to nursing school, my God, you know, do that one-year LVN thing. When I started doing that, my whole world, like I was recreated in discovering, again, one of my purposes in life, to become a gift. Because that's what nurses become gifts, right? And we should be that in all of our professions, really. How am I a gift to this? Well, then I got my bachelor's in nursing. I got my master's in nursing. And I, I mean, I just was like, I've, I'm there. I found it all. You know, I've, I'm found it all. Until it wasn't enough anymore, you know? And then I, well, I try something else. Well, I get a management. I find, you know, this. I find this. Until I found, rediscovered the church. I realized I'm made for more, and so are you. We're made for the infinite one. Um, and so that's, where, that's what we have to kind of keep our eye on the ball, always keep our eye on the ball. Oh, marriage is about finding my way to the Father. Marriage is a pathway to the Father. My single life is, is somehow a pathway to the Father in becoming a gift to the church, to the people that I teach, to the people that I work with and counsel. That's, that's my, that's today, that's my journey. And every day has to be like that for us. You know, what's my, de my destiny is God. How do I get closer to God today? What I did yesterday doesn't matter anymore. What am I doing today to work and make my way a little bit closer to the Father? And that's actually great, right? Because if I screwed up yesterday, I get to start all over today, right? So th that's good news. That's really good news. Um, we always get to start all over again. Um, how did I get into that? Okay, so how did this, so we're in paradise now, right? We're in Genesis 2, we're in paradise, things are great, we're naked and unashamed, we see each other as a gift, um, we see the other as God sees them. You know why? You know why they were able to see each other the way God sees them? Sometimes we look at people and we see their negatives, what they haven't done for us lately, um, instead of the good, the gift that they are, that takes training. You know why? because we struggle with sin. See, in the garden, there was no sin. And so they could see each other with the transparency of love. 
Love provides for us a transparency through which we can see God in the other person. But sin destroys that. Sin darkens our intellect and weakens our will. It distorts our vision. And so if you want to love well, you must sin less. Because sin makes us stupid and it makes us selfish. That's what love, that's what you know, sin does to love. And love's our, our main purpose. Why? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God who is love. And so we're made to love too. And if sin destroys our capacity to love well, then we need to try to get away from sin, which is the whole reason Jesus has come, right? At the instant of the fall, Jesus is promised. So let me talk to you a little bit about Genesis 3, because it is so connected to what we struggle with today. Genesis 3 is called the fall, because it's the big no-no, right, that we all experience today. Because what we had in paradise was original justice and original grace. That is God's life in us. We had in the garden, what Adam and Eve had in the garden was the ability to walk with God. You see, sin cannot be coexistent with God. God, it says in the book of Revelation, you know, nothing unclean shall enter heaven. And so we need, we need to get moving, right? If that's true, we need to get working on ourselves, right? So that we can be, that's what life is about. It's a preparation for the kingdom. And so part of that preparation is to be free of sin. And so in Genesis 3, um, we hear about um, how in that first line, let's open up Genesis 3, because I think it's, it's your first book of your Bible, chapter 3. Um, so in the red Bible, um, we have, it's on page 10. And um, yeah, please help yourself. Now my translation, this is why I don't like the New American, says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all animals that the Lord God had made. Actually, um, I like the word subtle. And I think the, the RSV has the most subtle of all of God's creatures um, that God had made. Now, who's the serpent, you guys? Who's the serpent? Satan, right? He's the father of lies from the beginning. He's the fallen angel. Okay? So his job is really to get man and woman in trouble, right? So he's, he's the most subtle of all God's creatures. Well, what does it mean to be subtle? That's what evil is. Evil never is going to announce to you that it's about to, like, ruin your relationship, empty your bank account, and screw up, you know, your family connections. It's never going to say that. It often can appear beautiful, right? And so that's what evil's whole purpose is to make you doubt about what you've always known to be true. And what Adam and Eve always knew to be true was that God was generous, good, he gave them everything. He was abundant, he was kind, he, to, he was to be trusted. And so, so what, is the, what does the serpent say to make Eve doubt? Did God say that you can't eat of any of the fruit of the trees of the garden? To say that, boy, God is kind of stingy, huh? You know, you're not able to do this. Kind of to, the opposite of what Eve's always thought about um, with the Lord. Now, it's interesting if you look at the first line, it says the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. But the serpent doesn't call the Lord, Lord God. He calls the Lord God, which is a lesser reverential name. 
And so even in, in just the, the beginning connection to Eve, he's kind of bringing God down a notch, right? And Eve follows suit. She uses the same terminology that the serpent used. And so we see in this writing a turning away from Eve, from, from the voice of the Father to the voice of the world. And we do this all the time. You know, as Catholic Christians, we'll get, are you kidding me? You're a Catholic? How could you be a Catholic? They don't let women choose. They don't let women be priests. Why would you be a Catholic? They don't allow divorced to re- that are remarried to receive communion. Why would you be Catholic? And we go, oh, that sounds really bad. I, maybe I shouldn't be a Catholic, right? Or, we, you know, we just say, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, sorry there's no open communion. You know, we don't know our faith enough to say, well, actually... As a Catholic, I have to prepare two years to receive communion. And so if you'd like to receive communion, I'd love you to come and prepare. You only have to do it for eight months with RCIA. You know, and then you can receive communion too and really know what you're saying amen to. So that's a really different answer than, yeah, I'm really sorry, isn't it? But that's kind of what Eve is doing, right? She's like, well, God didn't say that. God said that we can't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, which actually is the wrong tree. That's the tree of life. And then she says that we shouldn't touch it. Actually, God didn't say anything about touching the tree. He said, don't eat of the tree. So she's kind of heading down the slope here. And then she says, and if, if he does lest we die, which kind of means we might die. No, God said, surely you will die. And so Eve got... God's word wrong. And so I don't know why she got it wrong. I don't know if it was a bad communication day for Adam and Eve when he got the word of God. I don't know. I don't know if it was Adam's fault. I don't know if it was Eve wasn't listening well. But the point is this. Do we know God's word? Because remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert, he knew God's word and he was able to reply back what God's word really was. You know, and so do we know God's word? So that's kind of an eye-opener for us. Do we know what God says about the faith? Do we know what God says about the church? Do we know what God says about the sacraments? Do we know that the sacraments are very, have been given to us from the very beginning? Do we know those things? You know, do we know what we're called to in, in sex and marriage and, and, and all the different things that are engaged in our daily life? So do we know God's word? That's the first point. Then the serpent just kind of goes right for the jugular and says, God's a liar. You will not die. God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to become like God, which of course they already were. They already were like God. But that went totally over Eve's head. You know, she's, again, she's open to the words of the world. And she, she needs, like you and I need to do, is guard our senses. You know, who are we listening to? What, what music do we listen to? What news stations do we listen to? What, what television shows do we watch? What friends do we hang around with? Do they share our values? Or are they engaging in things that, you know, we know really aren't great things to be engaging in? You know, um, do we go to Mass? Are we receiving God in his word and his sacraments as God has asked us to? So these are, these are really important. Are we taking care of ourselves? Again, everything that we do is either, remember that first video we showed, I showed you, is a movement towards the Lord or a movement away? What do our movements look like every day? Are we moving towards the Lord in our life, in our choices? Um, so I think for the first time, 
Eve looked at the tree, and I look at the cross when I say that because the, the cross is the new tree of life. What of the cross, right? Eve looked at the tree for the first time, and what God had told her was not good for her, she redefined as being good. And that's what the world does all the time. It redefines that which is evil to be good and that which is good to be evil. It does it all the time. It says, oh, you know, marriage between a man and a woman, that's not, that's not important. Why can't two women get married? Why can't two men get married? TV shows reflect this. Normalize it. Cohabitation, that's fine. What's the problem? You don't loosen up Catholic Church. You know? But all of that's been redefined today to be good for you, right? And something like cohabitation is actually bad for marriage, right? People think, oh, that's a good practice for marriage. Actually, research has shown that people that cohabitate prior to getting married actually have a less successful chance of of having a long-term marriage. It's interesting, right? Why is that? We can talk about that in the moral life. But, um, and so, so Eve looks, and this is this is the anatomy of evil, right? Like when we, when we sin, we don't begin with the sin. We begin a change in our heart, right? And that's what Eve is doing. She's looking, she's thinking about it, she's chewing on it a little bit, and then she takes it, she eats, and she shares it with her husband because it's never fun to sin alone. And that's kind of what we do when we sin. I always say that, you know, I'm a, I love to shop, I love clothes. And so when my bank account is at a certain level, I should not go to the gallery. I'm like, that's not a good thing for me to do. If I go into my favorite shop in the gallery, I'm in trouble. If I pick out an outfit and actually try it on, I'm doomed. Right? And so how, am I guarding my senses? You know, am I taking care of myself so that I don't sin in that way? Um, and so they both eat of the fruit of the tree. Their eyes are opened and they're blinded to the gift because they've misused their freedom. They've disobeyed God. And so they no longer see one another. There's almost a film that's been cast over their eyes. They no longer see each other as a gift. In fact, what they do after they partake of the fruit actually reflects what's happening inside. They cover themselves. So they are no longer able to be in communion because the organs of communion are now covered. So they cannot no longer be one without a lot of work. I can no longer see you as God's gift to me without a lot of work. John Paul II says love has become a task after sin. Because now what we have is we, we have concupiscence. Now we have, instead of, instead of Adam and Eve giving us original grace and justice, they, have, they can't pass that on anymore because they've lost it. And so what we receive actually is a lack. A lot of times we portray original sin as a stain. It's, it's not a bad analogy, but it's really a lack. We no longer have God's grace in us. That's why baptism is so important early on. We, that's why we baptize our babies. Because we want them to be restored to the fullness of humanity. To be full of grace. As Mary, Mary was, as Jesus, full of grace and truth. So we'll talk more about that as well. But so, so what happens in Genesis 3 is um, a misuse of freedom, a loss of original grace and justice, loss of supernatural life. And so God actually throws them out of the garden because they've already thrown God out of, the, out of their hearts. And so that's important. This is the first mercy, actually, that God gives to them. Um, the, first, the first sacrifice was actually when he killed animals to give them appropriate clothing. 
that God sacrificed for them already in the garden. And then his mercy is that he, he throws them out of the garden so they don't partake of the tree of life and live without him forever. And so that's why, that's why they're, they're taken out of the, the garden. But before they're taken out of the garden, they're given the consequences for sin, which for the woman is painful childbirth, and for the man it's to work, and for work to be a toil. See, man was always called to work in the garden. He was the gardener. He was to till the garden. Do you remember when Jesus rises from the dead? Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus for the gardener. And he actually was. He's the new Adam. <laughs> Adam was the original gardener. And now Jesus is the new, is the new Adam um, who undoes the, the sin of, of Adam. But, um, but so in Genesis 3.15, we get what we call, and I know I've told you this before, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, where Jesus, or God the Father, proclaims the coming of the Son. I will place enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The seed, woman doesn't have a seed. The seed of the woman is Jesus. The seed of the woman is Jesus, and the woman is Mary. It's not Eve. We're talking about future. And Jesus, God is proclaiming the, the good news, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Um, and so this is what, this is what God the Father um, says. I'm going to place enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will bruise his, his heel. And so this is what Jesus comes to do, to undo what was done in Genesis 3. Um, questions about the fall and the circumstances around the fall and what that means for us today. I just think it's helpful to to read that. Now, we, we can't ever experience Genesis 1 and 2 again except through the pages of sacred scripture. So I encourage you to read that, you know, again and again. But Genesis 3 is something that we can see in our own lives. And so to be attentive to that, I think, is just a helpful thing in terms of maybe your review of conscience that you should be doing on a regular basis. Like, how did I do today? Do you guys do that? It's really a helpful thing, you know, at the end of the day to think, you know, um, Boy, I'm really glad I visited that lonely neighbor. I'm really glad I was kind to that person that really usually ticks me off. Or I'm glad I went out of my way. I, you know, I feel good about it. Because when you don't do those things, you feel bad, right? There's like, an, a, like a darkness there for you. But, and then, you know, what did I maybe fall short at? Where could I do better yesterday, you know, tomorrow? Maybe it's that I didn't, I didn't, you know, put myself out and say hello to that new person. Do a welcome. You know, we should grab coffee sometime. Or just ask them a little bit about their life. Or... Maybe something silly like that we just omit instead of kind of going the extra mile and reaching out, you know. And so to think about that at the end of the day and then just ask the Lord, you know, for help to do it better next tomorrow. You know, that's a review of conscience. Um, but to pat yourself on the back for the things that you did do well. Um, and maybe it was just that you got up in time and you got to work on time and you didn't curse anybody out on the way in on the 610 freeway, um, whatever that might be. Um, but that's important. So why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come and why did he come in the way that he did? There's four reasons for the incarnation. And all of them are tied into what we were just talking about, right? A restoration for what was God's original plan for man and woman from the beginning. So the number one is to reconcile us back to the Father, right? We've lost original grace and justice, so to reconcile us back to the Father. 
to show the depth of his love for us. Could he have given us, you know, original grace and justice back by not never becoming man? Yeah, absolutely. He's God. He could do whatever he wants. Um, but, um, but he wanted to show us the depth of his love for us. And, and I know I've, I've also mentioned this. I think that that's why we have the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, that Abraham is asked to sacrifice his only beloved son. And all of us read that story and say, how could, is this really God asking Abraham to do this? You know, and of course, he doesn't eventually ask him to do that, but it's almost like an, a wake-up call for us. This is what God has done for us. Um, he sent his only son um, to die for our sins. He also came to show us what it means to be human, that, you know, sin isn't something that makes us more human. It actually dehumanizes the human. So when somebody says it's just human to sin, that's not true. Jesus is the fullness of humanity. And so to sin is actually to dehumanize us. And so he models for us the way that we're called to live, to give ourselves in totality as gift um, to whatever it is that we're called to in our life. And then lastly, to participate in his own divine life. Ultimately, that means heaven. Um, but participate in his divine life now. When we receive the Eucharist, we are participating in the divine life of God. That's amazing. When we receive the sacrament of confession, we are participating in the divine life of God. We receive his grace in the most intimate of fashion through the sacraments. And that's why we think the sacraments are so important, right? Because that's like the intimacy of union with God here on earth. Um, there's other ways we can, we can have union with God through sacred scripture, through virtue, through good works, um, through, you know, lots of other ways that we can, we can, you know, commingle with God, but there's no more intimate than receiving his life through the sacraments of the church. Those are the ordinary ways in which we can be made holy. And I, you know, I think too, it's, it's helpful um, I remember one really good friend of mine who I taught at University of St. Thomas, and she was not Catholic at that time. And I remember she asked me, she said, well, what do you believe that only Catholics can be saved? And so I said, no, I think there's going to be a lot of Catholics in hell, and I think there's going to be a lot of Protestants in heaven with Catholics and even Muslims and Buddhists. And, and sometimes people are, like, amazed by that. Like, well, wait a minute. I thought that Jesus was the only mediator between God and man. Like, only Jesus. Like, you have to believe in Jesus. Like, you have to. And, you know, that is true to an extent. And this is what I mean by that. Um, yes, Jesus is the source of all grace and truth. But not everybody knows Jesus. You know, um, there are people in the world that do not know Jesus. But have they responded to the grace that Jesus has provided to them in their lives to respond to? And have they done it well? And we believe that those people, too, if they've responded in a way that, um, you know, has conformed with God's plan for their life, that they, too, um, you know, will see God and be with God. Um, and so... But, but it also means that those who have heard the good news and have not cared too much about it, God's not going to care too much about them either, you know? And so, again, he wills that all be saved, but not all will be saved. Who has responded well um, to his, um, his call and his grace um, in that way? Um, so these are the reasons for the incarnation. One of the questions that I think I get a lot is, but why did he do it in the way that he did it? Why did he come the way that he came? Like, why did he 
become man? Why did he, he, you know, grow up and then go through the passion, the death, and his resurrection? I mean, why, why did he do it such a violent, violent way? Um, and actually, you know, it, God is reasonable. He's reason itself, right? He's perfect mercy, but he's perfect justice. And so if we look at what happened in the fall, God's not the one that actually caused the fragmentation between God and man. It was man that actually undid the communion that existed. And so in God's perfect justice, it's man that has to actually make up for that. But man had no capacity to make up for the infinite separation that now exists between God and man because it's God against whom he acted. And so in God's perfect mercy, God became man so that he could then act as both man and God in reconciling us back to the Father and inviting all of humanity to participate in that because he's one with us in his humanity. But in his humanity, he's never outside of his divinity. And so he, he invites all of humanity then into his divine life. And only God could have done that. God become man. Then invites man to now participate in his divine life. It's a little deep, but ponder it. Think about it in prayer. And, um, and I know the Lord will, um, will show you. Okay. Okay. So who is Jesus? Just some, some things. We've talked about all of these things before, but... Does anybody know the meaning of Jesus' name? What does Jesus' name mean? Anybody know? If you think about, um, you can probably guess, if you think about it in this way, that um, it used to be, I know it's not so much anymore, that names had meanings. Like you were given a name because of what it meant and that that was the hope that your parents had for you. Like maybe you were named after a great saint. Maybe you were named after something that, had some particular meaning, like Mary's name. It does mean bitterness, which I, I refuse to accept. But it also means the beloved. And so, um, so does John. The name John um, means that as well. Does anybody know the meaning of their name in here? Know the meaning of their name? Go ahead, Dana. God is my judge. God is my judge. Beautiful, right? Um, and so there's a really great website that's called um, The Meaning Behind the Name. So you might look up your name and make sure you choose a good name for your children that actually reflects that. And that's why it's always been in the Christian tradition that you name after a saint because they've done great things, right? And you want your, your child to do great things, to live a holy and, and good life. Jesus' name means God saves. And that's what Jesus' mission was, to save, be a savior of the world. Um, that's what Jesus' name means. Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. We've talked all about these, right? I'm not going to go into deep detail about them. We are going to look at some of the Psalms and um, suffering servant. But Abraham, right? We have the sacrificing of the son. So here, you know, Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Moses, again, Passover lamb. Jesus, Lamb of God. By the blood of the Lamb, we are saved. Um, he is the Passover lamb. Um, Let's look at Psalm 22, 1 through 31 in your Bibles. The Psalms are in the Old Testament. If you got the red one, it's 578. Um, that's like Psalm 53. So, 
Um, let's go to Psalm 22, 1 through 31. There's a couple of um, sections in here that I think are really important. The first line, of course, reminds us of what Jesus prayed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from my call for help, from my cries of anguish? My God, I call by day, but you do not answer. By night, I have no relief. And then if you go down to eight, it says, all who see me mock me. They curl their lips and jeer. They shake their heads at me. You relied on the Lord. Let him deliver you. If he loves you, let him rescue you. Sounds kind of like what Jesus went through, right? This is all Old Testament prophecies. Um, if you look on, on 17, if you go down to verse 17, many dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers close in on me. So wasted on my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. That's what happened to Jesus, right? After he died, the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. He had, that's all he had left. And that even they had to um, take from him. So this is Psalm 22 is, is really the prayer of the innocent person. Um, and, and God, of course, hears them. At the end, you see, he says, um, and I will live for the Lord. My descendants will serve me. This is number 31. The generation to come will be told of the Lord that they may proclaim to people yet unborn the deliverance you have brought. So this is, this is a prophecy of Jesus. Um, the scorn that he goes through, um, the pain that he feels, um, everything is taken from him. And then if we go to Isaiah, if we go to Isaiah um, 53, and that's past. You go further down in the Bible, 53, page like 768, around there. Um, 53, Isaiah 53. This is a long-known um, psalm that really kind of focuses on, it's called the suffering servant, and it's really just a picture of Jesus. Who, who would believe what we have heard, to whom the arm of the Lord has revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot from the parched earth. He was the shoot of Jesse, if you remember. There was in him no stately bearing to make us look at him, no appearance that would attract us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, accustomed to infirmity. One of those whom men hide their faces spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our infirmities that he borne, our sufferings he endured. While we thought of him as stricken, as one smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our offenses, crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole. By his stripes we were healed. You think of his scourging. We had all gone astray like sheep, each following his own way, but the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Though he was harshly treated, he submitted and opened not his mouth like a lamb to the slaughterer or a sheep before the shearers. He was silent and opened not his mouth. You can read that whole, I mean, that whole thing is a portrait of the passion of Jesus Christ. You know, a prophecy of what's to come. And so Jesus is a fulfillment um, of some of these Old Testament prophecies. These, these aren't the only ones we have. So these are, these are some of the dark ones that we have. 
Um, but we also have some of the Old Testament prophecies about the virgin birth. You're in the book of Isaiah right now. Let's go to the seventh chapter of the book um, of Isaiah. Seventh chapter, verse 10. So, Bethany, you want to read? Can you find 14? Um, verse 14, go ahead and read that. Chapter 7. Oh, that's okay. Therefore, therefore, the Lord himself will give you this sign. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son. The name shall, and shall name him Emmanuel. Yeah, so here we have it. What does Emmanuel mean? This is another beautiful name. God with us. God is with us. And so here's, here's a prophecy of the virgin birth. Um, we also have that the Messiah is going to be from the line of David. We have the location of the birth of the Savior in Micah 5. If we look at Micah 5, which is in the prophets, which is after Isaiah. Let's see if I can. It's a small book, so pass over it. It's good for you to kind of go through. I am not a scripture scholar at all, and so I always have to find the books too. So 967 around there. Um, but don't be afraid. Go into the into the, um, the chapters. So if we go to five um, verse two, um, who'd like to read? Who'd like to read that? Um, Giovanni, you want to read uh, chapter five verse two? Actually, read, read from <coughs> verse 1 to verse, through verse 3. Go ahead. Verse three. Now you are walled about with the wall. No, no, start at verse 1, sorry. 5-1, but you... Oh, but you, but you, O Bethlehem... Ephrathah. Ephrathah, who are those to be among the clans of Judah. And you shall come forth to me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Yeah, so here we have, again, this, we're gonna, what's going to be born to you is going to be the ruler in Israel whose origin is of old, from ancient times, and it's going to be in Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means, the word Bethlehem, the name of Bethlehem means? It means house of bread, house of bread. And Jesus is the manna from heaven, right? He is the bread from heaven. He is our um, Eucharistic Lord. And so... Um, so here's the location of the birth. You know, it's, it's just pretty amazing. Um, all of those um, signs, and those are, those are not all of them. I'm going to show you a little um, flick at the end of today um, where Bishop Barron kind of gives you some, um, some, some of the other signs that somebody tries to kind of diminish, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But you would think that he would have been recognized um, really as, as the Messiah. And for some he was, right? For some he was. But some had a real vision of what that Messiah was going to look like. And really, for most of them, it was going to be some military leader that was going to overcome, you know, and win the battle. And Jesus was fighting another battle, you know, one of spirits, spirit and, and principalities. Also, you know, our vision is not, you know, is distorted, too, because of sin. And so seeing things clearly is oftentimes kind of an issue. And so we can see that the Old Testament is really found 
um, within the New and the New Testament is prefigured in the Old. So both of those things are true. So, so we see these Old Testament prophecies that really point to the New Testament. And then in the New Testament, we see all these pointing back to the Old, like Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, all of those things. I think it's also really important to recognize that um, you can believe this, not because it's just an article of faith, but because it's actually a historical event. And so um, you can actually you know, look in the Bible and you're going to find cities that existed, rulers that existed, you know, times um, in, in the past that you know, have been chronicled outside of Christianity. I mean, these are, these are places that existed, you know, people that existed, non-Christian wrote, wrote about them. There are eyewitnesses to this event, right? Paul talks about 500 who saw the resurrected Lord. And so... Um, so these are things that um, really we can, we can assent to, even with our reason. Um, they're documented. Um, the Gospels are wonderful chronicles and accounts of what really happened. I, you know, and I think the other thing is, and I mentioned this earlier already, is that, you know, this wasn't just like a lofty, you know, kind of call. This was like, people died for this. Like, I mean, you know, you, if you claim that you believe this, you, you were killed for it, you know, and so it's one thing to kind of proclaim like a, a different way, but to die for it, you know, I think that takes, takes us to a whole, whole new level. And so, you know, we can, we can begin to really see that God did enter time to redeem us and make possible um, eternal life. And so I think that this is kind of one of those really important dimensions of who is Jesus Christ that you need to kind of um, ponder and take in. Oftentimes, if you, you hear this statement, the God-man, this is an explanation of who Jesus is. We believe that Jesus is one person, right, but, but two natures. Fully human, he assumed a human nature, and he did so through the Blessed Virgin Mary. He was born, he came to be. Um, in his mother's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, not of human generation, but the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel tells us that. Um, but he, is, he, he does not leave behind any of his divinity when he does that. And so I think it's important for us to kind of, kind of unpack what does it mean by nature? What is a nature? A nature kind of is this chasm, if you will, this arena in which we act. And so all of us in this room have a human nature. And because of our human nature, we're able to reason, we're able to walk, we're able to talk, we can learn new languages. I mean, that's part of our human nature. We don't have the nature of a bird because we don't know how to fly. We can't fly, right? We're not a bird nature. Um, so, so our human nature allows us to act in a particular way. But our nature isn't that which acts. Our person acts. And so it, our nature gives us the sphere of action, and our person is the one who acts. God, become man, has two natures, one person. And so when Jesus acts in his human nature, he is born. He suffers. He cries. He gets angry. He, you know, bleeds. He does things that human persons do. But when he, work, he acts in the sphere of his divinity, he heals the sick. He makes the blind see. Um, you know, he rises from the dead. And so, and so there's, there's a difference between nature, but, but the person of Jesus is God. 
And so, um, so he can act in both spheres. And so this is important. I think I've already said this. This, this kind of points out for us the humanity of, of Christ, um, even the temptations in the desert. But it's his divinity that actually keeps him from, from getting into those, um, those temptations. The divinity of Christ, um, I've even listed some more things. This is miraculous to be born of the Virgin Mary, right? Because it's the Holy Spirit that makes that happen. The announcement to Mary that, behold, you are going to be this, the mother of the Most High. This is an announcement that is miraculous. The dream of Joseph, Joseph that Joseph has that says, don't divorce Mary. Don't divorce her. It's okay. It's the Holy Spirit that's acting in this life. She has not cheated on you. She has not had human relations with anyone. Um, she is, she is, this is her mission. The visitation to Elizabeth. When Mary goes to Elizabeth's house, you know, Elizabeth proclaims that this is the mother of my Lord. And so Mary's the mother of whom? She's the mother of God. And so this is a divine event that's happening. At the nativity, when the angels are worshiping, we see this in sacred scripture, that the angels are worshiping Jesus. Worship is only worthy of God. And so again, we have this divine reflection. The prophecies of Simeon and Anna. So when Jesus is presented at the temple, he's a couple years old, Mary and Joseph do what good Jews do. They're going to present, consecrate their child to the Lord. And in doing so, they have to offer a sacrifice. And Simeon is a, is a man that's been in the temple, and he was told by God, he got a vision from God that says, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And when Simeon lays his eyes on Jesus, he says, now I can die in peace because I have seen the Lord. And then Anna, who's a prophetess in the temple, hears Simeon, and she again validates what Simeon um, is stating. The finding of Jesus at the temple when Jesus is lost for three days and his parents find him in the temple, what does Jesus say? How could you not know that I would be about my father's business? My father's business. He's saying this to Joseph <coughs> and Mary. The miracles of Christ, which we talked about, all the healings, these, are, these, are, these show his divinity. The baptism of Jesus, we actually have, when Jesus is baptized, we have the voice of the father that cries out and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then the transfiguration, um, when Jesus um, takes um, Peter, James, and John with him up to a, a mountain and he is transfigured before them, he get, becomes a, a dazzling white, and they see him speaking with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. This is, this is a divine vision. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. The ascension. Jesus ascends before them to the Father. He sees them going. They must have been trying to grab onto his coattails. I can see them. Um, but he ascended to the Father. He told them he was going to have to do that because he couldn't send the Spirit until he ascends back to the Father. The resurrection. This is the number one proof that Jesus is Lord, right? This is, it's never been done that one would overcome sin and death. And there's witnesses to his resurrection, the 500 the 12, the 11 that, that continued to be with Jesus for the 40 days um, before Pentecost. Um, Jesus formed, continued to form the 11 in those 40 days um, and, and explained to them what has happened. Um, and then Pentecost, of course, is another miraculous event when the Spirit comes and people are speaking in different languages and yet they all understand each other. And so they're given the power of the Holy Spirit and they prophesy. Um, about what's, what's, what's true. So there's so many um, kind of episodes of, um, 
of Christ's divinity, but also of his humanity. And so, you know, how, how does this happen? Well, it only happens um, because God has assumed a human nature, has become one with humanity so that we can become one with God again. Now, I mentioned um, the early church councils um, that happened. The Council of Nicaea um, was in 325. Where do you remember the name Nicaea from? The creed, the Nicene Creed, right? We say that every Sunday still in church. <laughs> After the homily, we profess our faith, unless you're there for a baptism, which I was at 11 o'clock. So we didn't say the creed, but we said the baptismal promises. So this is where we hashed out that God was, um, that Jesus was fully God, fully human, and the Council of Chalcedon and, and Constantinople basically affirmed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-equal in divinity. One God, three persons. Um, what makes God one is his divinity. There can only be one God. And what makes God, um, what makes um, a distinction within God are his persons. Um, the relationship um, that exists within the Godhead. And so these were all kind of pondered out by the bishops of the church in the Council of Nicaea, Chalcedon, and Constantinople, all of which are still believed by every Christian denomination, um, except for those that don't accept the Trinity, which would be the Mormon church, some, some remnants of the Church of Christ, and then Mark told us about Foursquare, which is another... Protestant denomination that doesn't accept the Trinitarian reality. So, you know, the, the last, you know, the thing that I want you to ponder before we maybe open it up to questions and then I want to show you a little vignette from um, Bishop Barron is, you know, who, who do you believe that Jesus is? And if, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Word made flesh, the kingdom of God among us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you really believe that, what does it do for your life? Does it change how you live? You know, does it, does it mean anything to your day? I mean, if you believe he is God, then we should listen to him. We should follow him. We should understand what he has said, what his word reveals to us, and follow. And that's really the church's whole mission is to help us to know the Lord and follow the Lord more fully. Why? So we can experience the fullness of life that God wants for us, ultimately with him in heaven, but here on this earth as well. Um, questions, thoughts about who Jesus is? Yeah. Is that when they decided also like what the sacraments were? Because I know that when Jesus was actually alive, he did he, he did some of them, but did they have like names? Probably not. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, Eucharist was something very early. Eucharistia means Thanksgiving, and so that was very very early in terms of you know establishing it in the way that we practice it today. So that was like first century. That was not council. So Eucharist. From the early church fathers, Acts of the Apostles, John's Gospel, we believed, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life. And like you, this is what I'm teaching. So we've always believed that to be so. 
And then in the first, the early church, what they would do is still went to temple on Saturday, and then they would go to people's houses and celebrate Eucharist on Sunday. So that was kind of how, how it was lived out. And then when they were no longer allowed in the temple, which is after 70 AD, then everything was really done in people's houses, um, church houses and ma church masses. And then when Christianity became legal, then, then we could build our churches. Then we could have public celebrations and, and those kinds of things. Um, it depends what sacrament we're talking about in terms of um, you know, how they were actually um, lived out. This is what we kind of understand to be development of doctrine. It's not new doctrine, but what we believe is that we deepened our understanding of some of the things that Jesus taught us from the very beginning. Like the sacrament of confirmation is a sacrament that you're going to be receiving. Um, and it's, it's a sacrament that involves the laying on of hands. Well, we see this sacrament in the book of James, and we see it, the sacrament in the letters of St. Paul, um, that those that had not, had only been baptized with the baptism of Jesus, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. What does is, what is one of the, the, the hearers of this say? We never heard there was a Holy Spirit. There's a Holy Spirit to receive? We want to receive the Holy Spirit. So then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And then we talk about what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? You know, they're, they're all the gifts that you're going to receive, like wisdom and understanding, and you know, all the things that undo what baptism began in you. And so, so all of the sacraments have a history like that, that we came to understand them and administer them in ways that kind of deepened the significance of them. And so that's what changes, not, not the reality of them, but the actual living out of them. What, what the church has, has done is let's, let's find a better way of making this happen. Confession. It used to be that confession, people could only confess their sins once or twice, you know, and they had to do it publicly. So can you imagine, right? Confessing your sins public, and then receiving a public, public penance, like stand on the corner. And that's for Catherine. That was for that was that was way back. That was way back, right? <laughs> so um, and so it wasn't until like eight, the year eight hundred that the Irish monks actually developed kind of a new way of, of private confession to encourage people, you know. I mean, you can imagine, people don't go to confession today. They get to do it anonymously and in a room, you know, and it, you know, can you imagine if, you know, so anyway, so, so things like that have changed over time, but, but the essence of the sacraments, we believe are scripturally based. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, but great question. Anybody else? What I want to do is um, show you a clip from Bishop Barron. I, I love this clip. That um, kind of talks about um, the case for Christ, um, based on a great movie that I'd, I'd really encourage you to get on. I think it's on Netflix, um, but it's it's really it's kind of it's a nice review of what we um, just talked about. And I love Bishop Barron. If you if you don't know him, you should really get to know him. discovers the Christian faith. 
And it throws Lee Strobel completely for a loop because this is not his thing. He's an atheist. He doesn't understand it. He feels that it's a kind of betrayal of him. And I found that interesting because I actually worked over the years with some couples in that situation. You know, one's a believer, one's a, an atheist, a non-believer. In some cases, the non-believer says, oh, well, that's kind of a harmless little hobby you have. But in other cases, it's a real challenge to the marriage because the ultimate values are just different. And uh, the global <coughs> case is very much that second type. I mean, it caused a major crisis in his marriage. Well, he's a reporter, right? A man of the facts. He's analytical. And he decides, I'm going to debunk this thing. I'm going to show my wife that this Christianity thing is going to burn. And so he sets out with all his reporter skills to do just that. At the prompting of one of his colleagues, who's a Christian, he said, well, you know, what, should I, what should I investigate? And the guy says, well, it all rests really on the resurrection. You know, if there's no resurrection, the thing falls apart like a house of cards. So Strobel says, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to investigate the truth of the resurrection. Well, right away, there are a couple things about that that I really like. First of all, Christianity, at its best, is not fideistic. What I mean is, it doesn't rely simply on faith in an uncritical way. It's open to the investigation of reason. It's open to the contribution of reason. And so, someone asking good, hard questions, yeah, okay by me. Secondly, Christianity is an historical religion, sovereignly so. It's based upon very historical claims about this particular Jesus and the remarkable claim that he rose bodily from the dead. Now, there are a lot of attempts over the centuries and, and certainly in recent years to present Christianity as basically a philosophy, you know, it's a, it's a spirituality. Uh, sure, it goes back to Jesus, but, you know, he's kind of a long forgotten figure, and it's really what matters is his teaching, and he's a great moral exemplar. Well, that ain't it. I mean, that's just not classical Christianity. Strobel's colleague is right. It's based on this historical claim that Jesus rose from the dead, and if there's nothing to that claim, finally there's nothing to Christianity. So actually, I found it kind of bracing as this guy sets out, all right, I'm going to do the investigation. Because if honest Christian knows that it's a fair question and something is really at stake, and so it gives it kind of a thrilling quality. And in fact, the movie to me was a bit like a detective story. You know, watching a detective hunt down the clues, you know. Okay. So what were the, the questions that he uh, pursued? I mean, what were the, the objections he was trying to look into? Well, the first one, look, in the Christianity, the claim of resurrection is just a kind of pious fairy tale. You know, it's a story made up by people long ago who were afraid of death, or they, they wanted to get a following, or whatever. They made up these nice stories. Well, as Strobel follows that line, he runs up against the counter-evidence that no, lots of people in the first century claimed that they saw Jesus after he died. In one case, Paul says 500 people saw him at once. Is it likely that a made-up story, <coughs> a legendary account, would be so attested to, even to the point of death? Because let's face it, say what you want, 
most of the early Christian witnesses went to their death defending this claim. I mean, would someone do that for a, a pious legend that they made up? Just a nice uh, story? So that struck him as interesting and important. Second line of uh, criticism, look, isn't this thing just a case of, of mass hallucination? I mean, let's give them the benefit of the doubt that these were honest people. They were reporting something that they saw. But, you know, people had hallucinations, and this was maybe just a mass hallucination. Well, in pursuing that one, he goes to talk to a, uh, a psychiatrist. And she says to him, well, she herself is a skeptic, by the way, which I thought was interesting. She goes, yeah, I'm a skeptic about religion, but to be honest with you, that's not a very credible theory. She said, it just doesn't work that way with waking dreams or hallucinations. And then she says, if 500 people simultaneously had the same hallucination, that would be more miraculous than the resurrection. So he comes away from the psychiatrist with a sense of, well, okay, I guess that argument is not very good. Well, then he says, maybe these ancient texts aren't very reliable. You know, so yeah, we have the Gospels, and the Acts of the Apostles, and Paul's letters, and they all attest to this resurrection, but, you know, what do we know about these texts? Were they written many years, centuries later? Are they faithful to the original witness, etc.? So on the advice of, of uh, a friend, he finds this Catholic priest, who's also an archaeologist and a specialist in ancient manuscripts. And they've got a really interesting conversation. Um, the priest patiently explains to him that among ancient texts, the New Testament ones are some of the best attested that we have. So, I mean, who doubts the, the legitimacy, let's say, of, of uh, Plato's dialogue? I've got a copy up here on my shelf someplace that are based upon a whole manuscript tradition going back to, I don't know, maybe it's like the 7th or 8th century or the earliest ones we've got. The earliest surviving manuscripts of Plato's dialogue are from that era. Or look at um, Homer's Iliad, or the Odyssey. This expert tells him correctly that there's a handful of fragments floating around from the ancient world, but none of them as close to the original times as the gospel copies are. And in fact, we have a huge number of texts from periods quite close to the uh, first century early versions of the Gospels. The point is, it's more of a technical point, is the Gospels are by far the best attested manuscripts or texts we have in the ancient world. Well, there goes that uh, theory. A final one he pursues, and again, he's, he's kind of a dogged guy, you know, and he's, he's convinced all along this thing is not right. He pursues the so-called swoon theory. So the swoon theory says, okay, the texts are reliable, Okay, people really did see Jesus after he was crucified. But what they saw was a guy who survived the crucifixion and revived somehow in the tomb and then presented himself. <laughs> oh, the swarm theory, which again, you see that up and down the centuries and in the recent years also being represented. So in pursuit of this, he comes to L.A. to talk to a well-known um, physician, medical expert. And he says, okay, I want you to give me the best reading of the swoon theory about Jesus. And the guy says, well, you know, honestly, the swoon theory is rubbish. And then he goes through the physiology of crucifixion. And of course, this is pretty well attested. What the Romans did to someone 
in the course of the crucifixion. What it involved medically in terms of blood loss, asphyxiation, et cetera, et cetera. And then the fact that we know the Romans were especially good at putting people to death. He said it is impossibly unlikely that someone would survive that kind of uh, torture. I want to start to like, let's say someone did manage by some miracle to survive the ordeal of crucifixion. They came staggering out of the tomb. That's not what the first Christ is talking about. And you would never say, boy, oh boy, am I going to start a new religion based on that guy who, who basically needs emergency care? <laughs> That's not the way a new religion begins. So the swoon theory is rubbish. Now, as I say, all this time, because it's not presented in a simplistic way, all this time, Strobel is, you know, he's balking, he's questioning, he's wondering. His default position is that Christianity is bunk. But what's happening to him now as he moves along is gradually these arguments, these probabilities are accumulating in such a way that they're wearing down his resistance. And here I was reminded very much of John Henry Newman. Where Newman said, in matters religious, we rarely come to assent because of one clinching argument. Rather, it's by a whole series of probable arguments, hunches, intuitions, experiences, witness of others, that we avail separately, but they come together to a common point. And it's that process, under the guidance of what Newman calls the illicit sense, that the mind comes to assent. It says, yes. Well, this was happening to Lee Strobel. And it's a very interesting moment. When he's talking to the priest archaeologist, uh, he sees a reproduction of the Shroud of Turin, so the famous uh, burial cloth of Jesus, purportedly the burial cloth of Jesus. And he looks into the face of, of the Shroud of Turin. And he just says to the priest, you know, let's, let's bring this all through. But why, why would he have gone through that? Why would he have endured all of that? And the priest says, that's easy. Love. And that little line stayed in Strobel's mind. And at the end of the movie, as he's, as he's assessing all these arguments, and his tough reporter's mind is sifting through the data, that little insight comes back to him. And you get the impression that it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the last bit that he needed to push his mind to ascend. And so he does. He comes to faith. And it's part of the story that's very dramatic. And Lee Strobel emerges as a great figure in the evangelical world. And now for the past 20-some years, has been teacher, preacher, evangelist. You know? Well, there's a lot about the movie that I admired. But I think especially the way it presented this slow, steady, often painful, stopping and starting process by which we come to faith. I think anybody interested in the claims of Christianity, anybody with a tough mind about it, I think it's not a bad movie to watch. It's a great movie. I saw it in the theater when it came out. And the book, he's got a book, he's got the book, of course, too, which is, uh, it was harder for me to read the book, but um, the movie was good. It's on Netflix. Okay. It's on Netflix? Okay. Yeah, so. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, so it's really great. And I do love that, um, just that last line, because that's what love is. Love gives us a glimpse of the infinite. 
And so, and we all experience that in our lives, with our parents, our friends, our family, just, you know, our future spouse, whatever that might be, or our spouse, um, we get it. We get a glimpse of the divine, our children, all those things help us to see, um, who God is, that he's love. And so, um, that's what it's all about. All right. All right. Great. Um, any final questions, comments, concerns? That's all good. What's next week? What's, what does it say on your schedule? What are we doing next week? Church, Mary, the Mass. Okay. Church, Mary, and the Mass. I think I'm on again. Sorry about that. Tom Harmon was supposed to be here today, but um, he had a conflict. So, All right, great. Well, let's pray before we go. And um, I wish you a great week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this time to ponder deeply the gift of your Son, the Church, and all the ways that you become intimate with us here on earth. Help us, Lord, to receive all that you intend and to respond well to it with our lives in everything that we do, everything that we say, and everything that we are. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. And just one thing, Alejandro, um, it's Garcia, right? Yeah, Garcia. He is a seminarian um, of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. And he is spending um, time. Oh, from Brownsville. Sorry about that. But I studied here at St. Michael's. Yes, and so you'll be here for two years, right, at St. Michael's. So, um, so he's kind of seen what adult faith formation is all about. So he's with me in RCIA and adult confirmation. He's going to help teach one of the classes. And so be nice to Alejandro so he stays, okay? All right, guys, thanks so much. Have a great week.
Right. And then there's another really good one. Me too, and I'm sorry again. I don't have enough energy for this. You can't help me. I was really I think it does send it to you. That's basically totally
But God is behind the Big Bang. And he decides that man is going to be created at that moment. So the church says, you're free to believe that. You're free to believe. However it started, there was a misuse of freedom at some point. Like there's, you know, evidence of Jesus. So there's also evidence of like other other lives. So Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. kind of confuses me. It's Mm -hmm. like, how is Adam and Eve structure this way whenever there was another kind of humans that are like humpbacked and don't actually have a neck, you know? So that kind of Well, I mean, I think there's a point in which when does that um, entity, um, when did God intervene in that entity and when did that entity have reason and freedom? So it would only make sense if Adam and Eve came before the dinosaurs just because like, if you think about it scientifically, it would have to happen that way because then it's just like if Adam and Eve were the first humans, then these other humans that aren't like fully humans had to come after them. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's something that doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> Only because like I'm I'm mass, I'm 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 about to graduate with my biology uh-huh. and I'm going to be vet, so obviously mm-hmm. I have to yeah, evolution. Sure, it's, sure. That's just, it's just well, so the church doesn't deny evolution, but it says at a certain point God intervenes and says, "This is this is now man has my spirit, now man has my rationale." See, for me, I always reason. thought that God, to me, He intended for every evolution so that He can find a good balance between things and. Um, so that's how I always thought it, about it, but I was always confused where did Adam and Eve come along in mm-hmm. the story, mm-hmm. because I feel like dinosaurs even God made because he was just sure that kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and again, you know, it's you don't have to choose either or. You know, it doesn't have to be that way because you're you're trying to fit Adam and Eve into your scientific perspective, and it's really not a science book. Yeah, I get that. You know, so. And then my last question is about what you said in class. You said. Um, they don't, everybody doesn't necessarily need to be Catholic to go to heaven. Uh-huh. So for Buddhists, um, their lives are similar to Catholic. You know, they're they're about like being harmless and doing what's best for the life and the earth and just. But the thing is, is that they don't believe in going to heaven. They believe in going to being incarnated. Mm-hmm. So growing up. I had my peers tell me, oh, Buddhists won't go to heaven, they'll go to hell because of what they believe in. But you said, um, it doesn't matter what your religion is, as long as you do what God intended for us to do. So that respond to the grace that you've been given. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's what they're doing, you know. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're so, like, mm-hmm. graceful that they don't even eat meat. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure I necessarily agree. So I, let me turn off the recorder. Sorry. I mean, I think the one thing is this, is that, 